The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Proverbs chapter 23, we continue to make our way through the book of Proverbs. We are kind of nearing the end. Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 18 is what we're looking at this afternoon. This is what God has to say to us. This is His Word. This is His kindness to us in giving us wisdom. Proverbs chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given an appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a stingy of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for the Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My innermost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This concludes the reading of God's holy word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, there are many things we come across in life that are different than what they appear. A person who appeared to be a good hire because he has a stellar resume, has a good education, good work experience, turns out to be a terrible employee. A person who appeared to be of good character on their dating profile turns out to be a horrible person. A host presents an Airbnb or a place to stay as one of the most luxurious, quiet, quaint places, but it turns out to be a moldy, noisy place. Things are often not what they appear. And it is wisdom that helps us to see through that. And this is what our passage is about today. And there's six subjects that need to be seen as they truly are and not as they appear. And that's our outline for today. Six subjects that need to be seen as they truly are and not as they appear. The first is this, friendship. This is the seventh saying of the 30 sayings in this section of Proverbs 22:17 to 
24-22, and that's in verses 1-3, through 3, which says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. So this proverb immediately uh, follows the one before it. That makes sense, right? I don't need to explain that. Uh, Proverbs 22:29, which uh, says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Okay, now that you're going to stand before a ruler, the father addresses his son. He says, you need to be able to sit at his table and understand what's going on because sitting at his table is a great sign of welcome and of friendship in that day. But the father says, you need to observe carefully. Think carefully of what's going on. And in a vivid analogy, the father says, put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Now, of course, not literally. This is a figure of speech, similar to what Jesus says in cutting off your right hand. I'm still waiting for those who take the Bible strictly literally to walk around with, with without a right hand, but I haven't seen it yet. The father is not calling son to literally slit his throat. Rather, he's using an analogy that says, if you're given to appetite, if your appetite controls you, better to slit your throat than to not control your appetite. That's the level of seriousness with which you need to take this. And why is this so serious? Well, verse 3 says, Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. It may appear that he has your best interest, that he's your friend, but it is a deception. Now, how do we apply this today? And like, well, I don't know when I'll ever be able to stand before a ruler. If I do, do I just not trust him? Well, I think one of the ways is that, especially in our day, we, we have politicians that promise us the world. Like if you just trust me, you vote for me, I'll make sure that you get all your needs met. That everything will be provided for you. And we need to keep in mind that while civil authority does have an important place in civil society, yet we are to be wise and we are to not place our trust in princes and rulers, but rather in the Lord and not be led astray by these delicacies presented before us. And then we see a similar scenario, except it's a stingy man, not a ruler. And this is in verses 6 through 8, where it says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. So stingy here refers to literally someone with an evil eye. And it's the opposite of the expression in Proverbs 22.9 of a good or bountiful eye. And so that's why the English translators translate it the way they do, stingy. This is not a generous man, although he's given you something as a gift. It says, oh, yes, please take. I really want you to have it. But you know, based on other actions of his, that he's really stingy. And so he may say to you, eat and drink and present before you a pleasing meal and invite you in. 
And it may appear that he is genuinely generous. However, again, wisdom will cause you to see things as they truly are and not as they appear. Verse 7 says that he's inwardly calculating. He's taking account of everything that you're eating. Everything that you're using of his. Like, this is costing me. I'm, I'm keeping track of that. And so the K- King James Version and NAS translate it as, as he is thinking, so he is. That is, who he is towards you, really, is how he's thinking on the inside. And a stingy man will be thinking, look at all that he's using while on the outside. He's saying, oh, no, no, I'm really generous. And verse 8 says that in the end, you will vomit up the morsels that he has given to you. Giving of a morsel back then is a sign of friendship, of extending friendship. And so, in a figurative way, says that the morsel that you found sweet and pleasant, you're going to despise. This friendship is going to turn out to be false, and you're going to have wasted the pleasant and sweet words you expressed to this person. Now, how do we apply this in our life? Well, on the one hand, we do not want to be critical and have evil suspicions. 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, so we don't want to have evil suspicion without any warrant. However, on the other hand, we do not want to dive in and place our hope and trust in people. Uh, The minute they present us with something flattering, we say, ah, yes, I have found a friend. We do not look to their gifts or presentations, but rather to their enduring commitment and character. And we want to seek to be those kinds of friends. We want to seek to be those kinds of people. We want to be there to bless others rather than place our trust in others to bless us, especially based on surface level appearances. But this causes us to rejoice in our God. And here's why. Because He's not like fickle men. When the King of Kings lays before us a spiritual feast and says, come and eat, buy what is good without money and without price, He means it. When He declares His Gospel through His ministers and through His people, it is a true offer. If you come to Me, I will give this to you. When the King of Kings says this to wretched sinners who have never deserved it, when He says, I will give you grace, I will give you forgiveness, I will give you every spiritual blessing, knowing very well everything in your heart, He means it. He doesn't say within. He really doesn't deserve it. Why would He take this from me? He doesn't offer a gift only to resent offering it. But these are the hard thoughts that we have about Him. Thinking that He's calculating within. Not really true to His Word. Not really delighting to give sinners eternal blessings. But our God is a gracious King. 
Our God is a King of love. And so when He extends forgiveness, when He extends grace, when He extends this spiritual feast that even we have a picture of in the Lord's Supper, it is a sign of His true fellowship and love. And He actually cares better about our souls than we do ourselves. And so may we not have hard thoughts about our God because after all, He did give up His only begotten Son. We can truly trust Him. Now a second subject that needs to be seen as it truly is and not as it appears is riches. Verses 4-5 through Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now notice this does not say do not toil. Rather, this is saying do not toil in order to acquire wealth. That is simply to get rich. Like I want to be rich. This is talking about reasons why one would toil. We toil in order to provide for ourselves and our family. We toil in order to share with those in need, as Ephesians 4.28 says. But we do not toil or work in order to serve mammon, in order to accumulate wealth, to have a heaven on earth, in order to be given over to worldliness. Now, having wealth is not sinful. In 1 Timothy 6, when Paul's addressing the rich, he doesn't say, repent of being rich. Rather, he says, don't put your hope on riches. And that is what this proverb here is saying. And verse 5 gives the reason. When your eyes light on it, it flies away. And literally, from the Hebrew, it says, when your eyes fly on it, it flies away. The play of words. But what this is saying is, when you set your hope on it, when you set your sights on it like a bird of prey does to fly down and swoop it away, when you're that focused in on it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to fly away from you like a bird. Do not set your hope on riches is what this is saying. There is actually a study conducted on wealthy people and how they got wealthy. And it's really interesting to consider this, that the study found that it wasn't those who set out to get rich that got rich. Rather, it was those who were not setting out to get rich who got rich. They were just very good at a particular skill and worked hard, and they ended up getting rich. Of course, that's not in every case, but that was primarily the case. And this takes us back to Proverbs 22:29, where it says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And so we don't set our hopes on riches or getting our best life now, but we do work diligently and we work diligently in even a particular skill. And that should be our focus. So riches may appear to be attainable when you set your sights on them. But wisdom tells you they will fly away if you do. A third subject that needs to be seen as it truly is and not as it appears is instruction, specifically to fools. Verse 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. So speaking in the hearing of a fool means to address that person specifically. doesn't mean 
you're talking with someone and, oh, a fool walked by. Let's whisper, make sure they don't hear or something like that. Uh, rather, this is saying, don't teach or instruct a fool. Now, a fool is someone who has shown that he rejects wisdom. He has been corrected already. He has heard and he has chosen to reject it and he scoffs at it. He does not love correction. He hates it. And after he has shown this to be the case, generally speaking, not to say there aren't exceptions, we need not waste our time anymore. It may seem that more instruction and more correction and just be more fervent, then that person will listen. But you will only be wasting your words, as the proverb says here. A fourth subject that needs to be seen as it truly is and not as it appears is uh, the helpless. Verses 10 through 11. Do not, re- do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. So an ancient landmark is more than just a sturdy fence line that divides out property. It could be something like a big rock or a big stone, and it's property that's already been set. And when it comes to the fatherless or orphans, it says, uh, enter the fields of the fatherless. One could easily take advantage here because if somebody went and moved that landmark, let's say uh, it's a child and uh, both their parents have died or fatherless, and somebody comes and moves that landmark, what would happen is you would need to go to court. But back then, somebody who was not of age could not go to court. They could not speak in court. They needed a father to speak on their behalf. And so the fatherless truly did not have any recourse. You can go up there and you can move that ancient landmark and there would be no consequences whatsoever. Or at least it might appear that way. Because the proverb says they actually do have a defender, a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was an extended family member that would be able to speak in court on that person's behalf. And while it might appear that they do not have one, that you can take advantage of them, yet they do have one. And that one is strong. And it's the Lord who is their kinsman redeemer. And he will plead their cause because he is a father to the fatherless and a husband to widows, those without a husband. These are those that society can easily take advantage of, that they can easily win in court against. But the Lord is on their side. And while they may win a court case, yet the Lord will defend and protect the helpless. And he will protect those who are in this situation because our God is a God who is full of compassion and pity. He helps the helpless. And so our takeaway is that we do not take advantage of people because we can, or we do so only when there might be consequences. But rather we avoid doing it because not only is it wrong to do, but the Lord is on their side, and He will defend them. A fifth subject 
that needs to be seen as it truly is and not as it appears is discipline. And it begins with a call for us to first receive instruction or correction. Verse 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. We have heard this essential plea quite a bit in Proverbs. And the repetition indicates that our natural proclivity is away from hearing instruction and to be wise in our own eyes. But not only do we need to receive instruction, we who are parents need to bring correction and instruction to our children. Verses 13 through 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So we've seen this come up several times in Proverbs. And when it does, it's usually encouraging parents to discipline, to not withhold discipline. And that indicates that the temptation is to withhold discipline. This is not to say that being too harsh or exasperating our children isn't an issue, but the common one is withholding discipline. And the proverb here addresses our hesitancy. Might appear to be harmful to him, striking him with the rod. Now today we use a switch or a wooden spoon or a paddle, and it may appear to be harmful and heartbreaking. You see, in the child cry, it might tug on our heartstrings. And psychologists are saying today it's harmful to spank. It hurts their self-esteem. But the proverb here says otherwise. It says if you strike him, he will not die, implying a reasonable amount of force. In fact, not only will the child not die. But his soul will be saved from Sheol, the Bible says here. Sheol was the place that the dead departed to, sometimes just simply the grave. Sometimes it also referred to hell. Now we might be able to see how discipline could save a child from an untimely death, from a human perspective. Those who aren't disciplined end up doing very foolish things. That could even get them killed, get involved in a gang, pick a fight with the wrong person, uh, drink and drive, overdose on drugs, so forth and so on. But can spanking or discipline really save someone's soul from hell? Doesn't only the gospel do that? My elders are getting nervous. What am I, what's he going to say? <laughs> Just kidding. How can the spanking spoon do that? Well, obviously this is not an absolute principle. It's a general principle, but it's similar to what Paul says regarding church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. That to hand someone over to Satan is for the purpose of the destruction of the flesh, that they may be saved in the day of uh, the Lord. Obviously it's not a guarantee, but it is a means that God uses to bring a person to repentance in Christ uh, before the day of judgment. And spanking or discipline or correction can function in a similar way. When we discipline, we are enforcing in a painful but useful way the fact that they are sinners. That what they have done is wrong and deserves consequences rather than patting them on the head and saying, Oh, my dear angel child can do no Wrong. And this causes them to experience shame from their sin. 
it reinforces this idea that sin brings about shame that they would not have faced if they are just left to their ways without discipline, as if they did nothing wrong or shameful. I still remember a time in my uh, former church in, in Omaha. There was a, a child that was acting up during one of the, the children's Sunday school. And so the parent brought the child to the teacher and had the child apologize. And of course, the child sheepishly, sheepishly did. And then the father asked the child, you know what you did is called? And the child just burst into tears. Sin! And he had to face the fact that what he did was sin. Rather than getting patted on the back, rather than the parent defending the child, oh, how dare you, you know, say anything bad about my child. Rather, the father was faithful to discipline this child and cause this child to see what you did is sin. And it brings a level of shame to do that. And from there, this shame that you feel from your sin, this is why you need the Gospel. This is why you need Christ. The reason why you did this naughty thing is not because of your circumstances, but because you have sin in your heart. But we don't leave the child helpless and say, just do better next time. Rather, we say, and this is why you need Jesus. This is why you need to call out to Him. He will forgive you. He will save you. This is why you need His forgiveness. As they feel the shame of their sin. So it may appear that discipline is harmful, but it is actually very beneficial if done reasonably and not in anger. And for children, it may appear that your parents don't love you when they're disciplining you. They should just let you have your way, right? No. And they actually love you and want you to do well. And that's why verses 15 through 16 say, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. And so children, it gives your parents great joy when you do what is right. And conversely, it gives them pain if you walk in foolishness, especially if you grow up to walk in foolishness. And it will cause us great joy, not only if you do what is right, but if you trust in the Lord, if you turn to Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior, if you believe on Him, that will cause our heart to burst with joy if you turn to Him. And if you, upon turning to Him, place your faith in Him, causing you to live for His glory. There's no other greater joy that parents have than to see their children walk in the truth. A sixth and final subject that needs to be seen as it truly is and not as it appears is sinners. Verses 17 through 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. 
Now, when it says sinner here, of course, we're all sinners still, even as believers. But when he says sinners here, he is referring to those whose life is characterized by sin. This is not someone who's repented. This is not somebody who's turned to the Lord. And this is not somebody who, upon falling back into sin, uh, turns to the Lord. This is someone who just continues on in sin without repentance. It's what characterizes them. And there may be a tendency to envy them like Asaph did when he saw that they apparently have a trouble-free life while he is serving the Lord and suffering. The Christian is not called to a trouble-free life, to your best life now. The Christian is called to a life of suffering, not only from the outside world, but also within. Taking up your cross daily to follow the Lord is a life of suffering. To be crucified daily? Crucifixion isn't a pleasant thing. To stay away from sin, to constantly battle the sin within, that is that's a difficult life. It would be nice to, have, uh, to, to not have to be crucified daily and, and indulge a little bit. Indulge in, in sexual immorality rather than staying pure. To be liked and loved by many, by the world, rather than hated because of the stances we take on the truth. Called bigoted and, and phobics. pastor was telling me that his neighbor makes about the same as he does. And yet his neighbor has all these toys that he wants. These side-by-sides and four-wheelers. And it would be so nice to have these things. And he couldn't figure out how does he get these things when we make about the same. And that's when he realized, oh, it's because I tithe faithfully. And he could envy the sinner by saying, if I just didn't sacrificially give, then I can have what he has. And that was a temptation. And that's our temptation too when the Lord calls us to certain things. We can, a lot of times, we don't just sit there and envy within. A lot of times we just say, well, God really doesn't care. I mean, I don't want to be legalistic and we just indulge in sin. But that is envying sinners. It's saying, I wish I had their life. I wish I didn't have to follow the Lord in this area. But God calls us to continue in the fear of Him always. That is to stand in awe of Him. To look upon Him as our great treasure and delight. But He who has also loved us with an eternal love and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is how we stand in awe of Him. That is how we remain in the fear of the Lord all the day. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our everlasting reward. And so as Proverbs here says, And as Asaph said in Psalm 73, we consider the end for both sinners and for ourselves. As it says here, rather than envying sinners, remember, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Consider your end. Consider your future. You have a heavenly inheritance because of the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. And therefore, as Proverbs says here, our hope will surely not be cut off. As Asaph said, 
you hold me by the right hand and I will enter into glory. You will receive me into glory. And so while this world may appear at times to be better and sinners seem to have it easier than we do, yet the reality is that they are on their way to destruction. Unimaginable torment. While we are on our way to joy inexpressible and full of glory. Not because we're better than them, but because the Lord, before time began, chose to set His love upon us and save us from our sins. If this is what God has done for us and not for the world, how can we not but love Him? How could we ever possibly envy sinners? Yeah, they may get the whole world, but they lose it all when they forfeit their soul. Why would we want to be like them and indulging in the slums of sin when God has rescued us from this prison? May we never envy sinners thinking that true freedom is outside of God's holy law, but may we be ever increasing in gratefulness for the salvation that He has so graciously given to us, standing in awe of Him all the day, remembering our hope, and showing gratitude towards Him in living holy lives for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we ask that You would help us to apply this wisdom that You've given us in Your Word. We ask that You would help us to do this for Your glory, that we may walk in wisdom, that we may walk as Christ walked. Give us help, O Lord, because we are still sinful and prone towards all sin and temptation. But lead us not into temptation, O God, and deliver us. Deliver us evermore from the remnants of our sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.